I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Rena Pauly is an actor, teacher, producer, and writer, and is a founding member of Michael Chekhov Canada, as well as the Chekhov Collective. She joined me to talk about the Chekhov Collective's theatrical staged reading of Anton Chekhov's The Fiancé, running March 1st to 5th at Toronto's Red Sandcastle Theatre. Here's our conversation. Serena, thank you so much for joining me. If you could give me a little um, just elevator pitch for like if you had to describe to somebody who you are and what your artistic yeah. practice is. Sure. How would you describe that? OK, uh, I'm an actor. I went down to the States um, in my mid to late 20s because I worked in the entertainment industry. I worked at the Toronto Film Festival, the theater festival, and then decided in my early to late mid-20s to become an actor. So I went to New York and studied at HB Studio for three years with predominantly Carol Rosenfeld, Herbert Berghoff, and then briefly with Uta Hagen. Um, and then I came back to Toronto and uh, worked, worked a lot in uh, episodic television and tons of commercials. And I've always had a theater company of my own in one form or another. I sort of miss those formative years in your 20s when everybody goes off and does theater. And I had a family quite quickly. Um, and and um, I guess in my late 30s, I was doing a play with a friend. And I said, what are you doing? Your work is so fascinating. And she said, I've just started studying the Michael Chekhov technique. And so I went to Cro uh, uh, Croatia, where it was that year, and was introduced to this wonderful technique and community. And... Uh, I have been practicing it for 20 years. I now teach it. I co-founded Michael Check of Canada with Lionel Wall and now Peggy Coffey. Um, I've had a couple of theater companies, but, and I made some short films. But now I have a theater company called the Chekhov Collective, where we've done Chekhov plays, and now are reading staged readings of short stories. And it allows me to put some of the Michael Chekhov technique into the rehearsal process. So like everyone and yourself we all have to do many things to survive as artists um and so that's kind of roughly what what my background is 
Um, for someone who doesn't know, uh-huh. what is the Chekhov technique? I know nobody knows. Uh-huh. Uh, so no, it's true. I mean, it, it, the, the last living student of Michael Chekhov. Um, first of all, Michael Chekhov was Anton Chekhov's nephew. He was considered one of Russia's greatest actors. He came out of the Moscow Art Theater, and, and he was Stanislavski's star um, student and actor. And he worked with Van Tangoff, and then. Um, during, you know, uh, he was told uh, by a friend, Merhold maybe, that if he didn't leave Russia, he was going to be imprisoned and left with his wife. And um, then worked in various theaters in Eastern Europe. And then the war kind of made its way into Europe. He ended up in London for three years, where he worked with a group of actors, one of them a Canadian, um, where he defined his acting technique. And then the war hit there, and then he came to New York, had a theater company, was on Broadway, and then eventually made his way to L.A., where he was a private tutor for Gregory Peck, Marilyn Monroe, lots and lots of actors. Um, Jack Nicholson uses his technique, uh, Clint Eastwood, um, uh, and then died in 1955 from a heart attack. And so there was a period in the States where they were deciding to use either Stanislavski's technique or maybe Michael Chekhov, and they chose Stanislavski. And then they created the American method, which was different than the Russian. Um, and he sort of got forgotten. And all his books and notes were destroyed in Russia because he was considered uh, dangerous to the state. Um, and there's been a resurgence in his technique. And his last living student, Joanna Merlin, started an organization 22 years ago. I was involved 20 years ago where people teaching it around the world came together and we did uh, did a summer intensive workshop. Um, and her goal in the last 20 years is to put it into the education system. And it's pretty well taught in every university in America. Um, it's taught at Lambda and in Central. It's taught at all the, uh, it's now taught pretty well all over the world. Um, and I've been trying to get it into theater schools here in Canada, but they are um, kind of, reluctant to try new things. Um, but it is, uh, he differentiated from Stanislavski and that he believed that you don't use anything personal, that we are artists and we have unlimited imag- imagination and it is a resource that uh, we are under-practiced and underutilized. And he also doesn't believe in, he believes in doing analysis with the body and the imagination. So it's embodying everything, um, and it's honors creative individuality. It's really playful, um, and it's holistic. And I don't want to use the word spiritual, but there is a part of it that's kind of magical and uh, accepting. It's yes and. So it's uh, it's really a fun technique. Hmm. Um. Now, I think a lot of people have in their heads an idea of what the Stanislavski uh, 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 system was. I think he called it a system yep. or technique, mm-hmm. and it was it was Strasberg who turned it into a method. Um, and I think people understand a little bit, but it's vague because the American method has become such a juggernaut. So, so the um, I I have a theater company, and we did a couple of. Anton Chekhov plays because right. they're the best written plays. And he writes great roles for women at any age, truly. Um, unlike Shakespeare. Uh, but, well, I shouldn't say that. He has some great older woman roles, but they're not very frequent. Um, and his writing is so beautiful. 
Um, and I did these productions, um, and I was also an actor in them. And what happened was because I feel comfortable as a producer, and I'm sure lots of people know this story who developed their own work, is you spend so much time lifting this beast and being a producer that you end up not looking after yourself as an actor. That's true. Um, so that was happening. And then I did A Midsummer Night's Dream, which was a beautiful production. Um, but I lost quite a bit of money on it. And so I just thought, I need to find a way to make this smaller, more affordable, and doable. Um, and I had seen at one of the, the Michael Chekhov uh, summer intensives, there was a woman who came out of a, from a company in San Francisco where they did li stage literary works. And she presented something, and she asked me to be in it, and we did The Raven, the poem, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's poem. And so I saw the process work. I know that there's a company in New York that has done uh, literary works, uh, uh, staging them. I, The actors still have their script in hand. Mm -hmm. And I, I would recommend if people have their own companies to come and see it, because it is really doable, magical, um, and you can even do it with a staged play. Uh, the idea of doing a short story is, for Chekhov, not, they're similar to his plays, but you get to hear what the characters are thinking, which is kind of fun. So it's like having Chekhov in the room with you, commenting on all these things. Um, and Michael Chekhov, I know it's confusing, the two Chekhovs, the actor says the actor is the theater. And so for me, there's something about going into a space with music stands, limited props. I've used the same set on all four short stories. Mm. And um, and then creating this magical world, kind of like theater storytelling, where you're asking the audience to participate with their imagination. And they go on this beautiful journey, and then we end up back at the stands. And so as actors, we create atmospheres, which is also Michael Chekhov tool. Uh, we're not taught to use space as actors. And then put something in it and receive it. So we use space a lot. And you throw that over the audience. So they're part of it. They're part of this atmospheric experience. And so in the storytelling, the atmospheres are changing quickly in different chapters, different locations, different emotional states. And so we can create this kind of dreamland with just our bodies, our energies, and our imaginations. And then, of course, these beautiful words and characters. Um, and they're just an hour. Uh, the actors love it because we we play a lot. It's ensemble-based, and they don't have to learn live. But the R8 <laughs> is the biggest gift of all. Um, so it's, and, and, and we usually, we've sold out the last four years. I've added two shows this year um, because it is such a unusual and delightful format. And... I think, you know, storytelling's at the heart of theater, and there's mm -hmm. something about stripping it to just the actor's tools creating a world is 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 kind of magical. There is certainly something about, um, it's one thing to have somebody stand on a stage by themselves and tell a story, but to have yeah. all of the actors together mm -hmm. reading and, and, and telling the story that way. There's sort of, you know, there's a, there's a power in like lifting the words off the page. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, these these are extraordinary words. And, you know, the wonderful thing about Anton Chekhov is that, you know, he writes about truly the most banal characters. His stuff is, I would say, all Chekhov. And Chekhov has always said, 
every play, including The Cherry Orchard. And if there is a suicide at the end and he considers it a comedy, that everything he writes is a comedy and he insists on it. So there is this, the first thing we do as actors is we go, what is the, what is the atmosphere of the play? Because we don't want to get the wrong atmosphere. And so the atmosphere of all Chekhov plays, I think, and short stories is this lightness. It sort of dances along quite lightly. And even if there's sadness or there's ennui, it's just lifted a little bit by joy. So they don't sink into uh, tragedy. Um, and, and, and so it's kind of bittersweet and kind of funny. In fact, in some, in some ways, the more sad sack they are, the funnier it is. And they're so full of blind spots about themselves. And, and he describes so much through weather. It sets up so many, uh, so much of the atmosphere. It tells you more about the characters. Um, and he does it with such a light touch. And there's so much humanity and humor in his writing. And when I was in, yeah, go ahead. I was in theater school. Um, our, our acting teacher, we would talk about Anton Chekhov. He also would tell us that the works of Anton Chekhov are considered, Chekhov considered them comedies. And, yeah. You know, our exposure to 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 Chekhov had been the opposite, and so I, at the time, I figured that was just being Russian. But yeah, no, I mean, I you know, I, I sometimes when we do shows and nobody's laughing, it's like it's the Russian audience, mm-hmm. and it's because they're listening, mm. and and they're just listening, and and so we think if there's not laughter, it's not funny. And so you have to, what you have is two atmospheres fighting each other. You have this weight of the audience and you're trying to lift up this material. And so you just have to keep and you have to keep really honoring that and, and sharing it with the audience. Um, but I also think that you tend to be reverential about it. And he was never reverential about his, his, his writing. I mean, he was serious about it and he was very dedicated and he worked really hard, but he, he always said, don't, don't, don't. Uh, just write, just just get up and write. And uh, there was a great quote I found that somebody had an article I read where he said something like, uh, "His characters just uh, oh yeah, Chekhov loved life more than the meaning of life." And so sharing these banal characters and their simple lives was way more interesting to him. And ultimately, he came from poverty. He worked as a doctor in the countryside. That was his life you know he, he didn't like pretension and airs um mm. and and he honored those he honored those simple tales and yet there's so much ambiguity and humanity in it a friend of mine is um uh he came out of the business world in banking and he's now retired and he's working with a group of international bankers who are trying to put the humanities back into the, all the ivy league uh business schools and on the curriculum is Chekhov's stories, because what it teaches you is ambiguity, compassion. Um, and it's an important thing, particularly for business world, to learn, I think. I think it's interesting, the idea of, of an audience uh, listening intently and enjoying it. Mm-hmm. It's a comedy, but they're not laughing out loud. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think yeah. sometimes audiences audiences need to be told... Uh, they need an indication sometimes that they're allowed to make noise. They're allowed to to laugh. And it may be that coming into an Antov Chekhov play, they don't know that they're allowed to find this funny. Whoops, did I lose you? Oh uh, no, I'm I'm still huh? here. 
Can you hear me? I am still here? Yes, I lost okay. you. Okay. Um, what I said was, um, I think sometimes audiences don't know that they're allowed to laugh at something. Um, because they've been, they've sort of been taught the idea of, of, of the, this, this reverence for, uh, Chekhov and -hmm. Chekhov's plays that, that, that they may come into something like that with the idea that, oh, this is far too serious for me to laugh at. Or they're listening. You know, I think as a performer and as a director, our job is, and one of the first things I do too, when I work with the actors is say, uh, let's send this out to the audience. I imagine the audience, this is what Chek- Michael Chekhov did as well. In your rehearsal, imagine the audience being there and you're constantly sending energy out. It doesn't mean you're pandering to the audience or it's just that you're sharing with the audience. And ultimately, I think you go on stage and send love to the audience. They have gotten in their cars, they paid their money, it's bad weather. You know, they've trekked in here. They want to be here. They want to be entertained or they want to not entertain, but they want to be participatory. Sometimes people just respond differently. My husband give, mm. gives me jokes all the time to read. And I'm like, yeah, that's funny. Except you did laugh. It's like, yeah. Ah. But it's, <laughs> so it's it's not our job to be responsible for how they respond. Mm. It's our job. I don't like the word job, but it's to share this joy and lifting out mm. to them, regardless of what the characters are going through. And where you can set that atmosphere the minute you enter. I like to set it when I do a little intro. You know, um, that you lay out this atmosphere of what this is going to be and the tone of it. Um, and then how they respond is how they respond. You're, mm-hmm. you, you can't really uh, be responsible for that. You can only do what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. And every night it's different. And it's like having, um, I mean, the wonderful thing about an audience is it's like, it's like improvising with a new partner every night. That's part, mm-hmm. of, that's part of, the, of the equation. Um, uh, because, you know, this idea of a fourth wall, fourth wall, which I was taught at, at, in the States, um, it just, the fourth wall is for the character. It's not for the actors. And it's the actor's job to share all this with the audience. The character may not know the audience is there. As we're reading, it's different. We're storytelling to an audience. So it's a completely different format. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to bring them along with the story. And create this world in this space um, by saying, here's the house. Along the back of you is the street. And then there's the town over there. Oh, you can't see me. Two, I'm saying, so you're, 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 it's like painting, mm-hmm. it's like painting the scene for the audience. Um, I've, I've seen some actors. I mean, I think the idea of the fourth wall, I think some people take it too far to heart. Um, because I've seen some pro actors who they're not, like you say, they're not pandering to the audience. They're not talking to the audience. No. They're talking to their stage, their 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 fellow actors on stage or the characters. But you can feel that they're feeling that audience. Mm-hmm. So I've seen some brilliant comedic actors who never miss a beat because they feel this audience needs this moment. They feel mm-hmm. just by like feeling the energy of the audience. Audience, they're able to to do that. And I think mm-hmm. it's a, a fascinating separation between the idea of like you said the fourth wall being for the the character not for the actor yeah and and you know we're you do i i i have to use michael check vocabulary he talks about radiating so and and even peter brooke talks about three circles there's the eye so you just keep the energy to your skin 
level and you walk around. Then you share it with the stage and your audi- and your partners. And then you share it out to the audience or the camera when you're on set. Um, so there's always a witnesser and they are part of that vocabulary. They are, they are still your partner. Um, and you may not be speaking to them directly. Uh, they may not be part of the character's world, but they're part of the actor's world. And the actor is always present with the character. Uh, you know, when you're on stage and you're in a character and your mind goes, oh, what about this, this, and this? Maybe I'll, tw- I'll tweet this. And then, because the actor is always there with the, with, the, with the character. And so the actor is always aware of the audience um, because they're part of this equation. That's what's beautiful about live theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was uh, something, I met, made a note of this last year when we did our show, um, because COVID was so hard on everyone being mm. isolated. And particularly as performers, we need an audience. That That is the that is the definition of a performer. Um, and, and the audience could be a camera. And there was a, a friend of mine told me about a study that was done with an orchestra where they put the headsets on all the orchestra members and they connected it to their own heartbeats. So every orchestra member was listening to their own heartbeat. And they said, okay, we want you to start playing this song, this this symphony. And so you can imagine that the beginning was just this cacophony of just whatever. But eventually over time, they all slowly began to play to the same rhythm. And so I've always heard in the theater world that audiences heartbeats over time begin to be as one. And it's this collectiveness, this sharing that we missed during COVID and I, and what we love about live theater. And this space we're doing our show in at um, Red Sandcastle is really small. Like the, the, they're, you, You're right there with the actors. There's nowhere to hide. And so it makes it really intimate. And I like to think that Somewhere where through the show, we all began to breathe and move as one organism. And and that's what's so great about live theater. Absolutely. And the Red Sandcastle as an intimate space, I think, is 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 one of the most intimate in the city because for the actors, I, I remember I was talking to an actor. They were like, I'm doing a show at the, uh, the Red Sandcastle. I've never been there before. And they were trying to get some feedback on the, the monologue they were doing. Yeah. And I... I told them, you're you're playing this like the audience is far away from you. I want you to keep in mind that where you're standing, there's a set of feet like almost touching yours. Like that's how intimate it is. You're talking to them. You can practically feel them. And it's such a great space for that because of the closeness between the performer and the audience. Uh oh, and people talk about it all the time, this intimacy. And another reason why you can't ignore the audience, they're your partner. Um, because they're right beside you. It'd be like sitting at a, yeah, we do it all the time. We sit at a bus and we pretend the person beside us isn't there. How yeah. stupid is that? <laughs> um, and, and so you, you, you have to acknowledge them. But for us, it's different because we're storytelling. So we're actually taking them along on a journey. Um, and then we'll storytell and then, and then have a little scene and then storytell. Um, and even as the characters are commenting on what they're saying, because we're bringing the literary work to life. We're not cutting it. They can do it in the scene. And sometimes it's an aside to the audience, but it's usually all part of the staging. Um, and it can be funny because it can become contrary to what's being said um, or it can support what's being said. Uh, uh, 
yeah, so it's interesting. Rena, you mentioned, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm done. Go ahead. Okay. Rena, you mentioned um, you're, you know, doing some work in in, uh, the Toronto film scene and before, Mm -hmm. you know, going to the States to to study acting. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I'm always curious about is uh, people's journey to the theater. And so you didn't start intending to go into the theater, but you found it. So tell me a little bit more about about what it is that 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 sparked that and drew you into into studying. Um, it's uh, you know I came from a, a background where uh, going to university was a gift, um, and so you went to be trained for a job. Uh, and at the time I was very athletic, so I thought, okay, I guess I'll be a phys ed teacher. So I went to, but I studied kinesiology at um, Waterloo, and I didn't like it. And then I tra- but I took some dance, a lot of dance classes. And then I went to Queens and studied phys ed, and then I did a minor in drama. And I came out and I worked at, I did the film festival for many years in the summer, uh, Terrebonne Theater. I, I worked in that industry and then realized I wanted to act. And I also wanted to go live somewhere else. Um, and at the time, there wasn't a lot of places in Toronto. It was a National Theater School, and that was kind of it. And I didn't feel equipped to audition for it. And I was pretty, maybe 23 at the time, 24, and 25, can't remember. Anyway, I just said I'll be a great adventure and go to New York. Um, and I stayed there three years, and it was super fun. And then I came back, and I didn't really trust my acting. So I'm not an agent, but I didn't work a lot. And then I started to work. Um uh, and I did fringe shows. I did a lot of episodic and commercials. But then I had three kids back to back. Life took over. But I always kept, I had a theater company with Catherine Hayes called Stiletto Theater Company, where we combined physical theater and clowning with text. Um, and we did that because our writing was weak. And so we could physicalize stuff better than we could write. And we did, um, I think, three or four productions. We got Dora nominations, and one site was published. We wrote it with Emil Share, and uh, and then I left because I felt limited. I felt I I was limited by my own limitations in terms of a writer and performing. And then I had a friend who was in the film industry, and I made three short films. They toured at festivals. One played at TIFF and toured for a year as part of their ten best films. It was a short film. Um, and then I guess what else did I do? In the meantime, I'm still doing up television and stuff. Um, and then I started the Chekhov Collective. And I guess, so 2013, I started that. So it's 10 years old now. Wow. And I try to do a show a year. Mm. I mean, it's, it's good to, it's definitely good to, to have that, that kind of regular schedule. People can, can look forward to the work, right? If you're doing it every year. Yeah. Oh, also, I forgot to tell you, I helped my sister lift, lift a business. Um, oh. Yeah, that and I was ten years doing that. But the money I made from that funded this theater company, and mm-hmm. it was um, I don't know if you, are you in Toronto. I am. So Body Blitz Spas, the women's spas, okay. two okay. of those, and then so I helped to lift all that. Um, yeah, so I've always done different things, but my goal now is to honor the artist, and I have to remind myself that when I get overwhelmed with producing stuff, to keep okay. it simple and honor the artist. Yeah. Now, the drive to create your own work is something, mm-hmm. um, it's become more and more an important part of any theater career, is, is to make your own work. And some people do it because they, they feel they have to, 
And some people do it because they are driven to do it. It sounds like you're driven to create your work. Uh, uh, definitely. I am. Um, a uh, uh, couple of things. I think um, this is a shitty business and it's a long business. You can come out of the gate really busy and then it can peter off. It can, you know, it, it's, it's a long road. And so there's a couple of things. You have to build a life. Um, and then you have to find things that feed the artist, feed your love of this, and and separate it from the business of waiting to be chosen. Um, and that was an impulse. I also felt I needed a bigger voice. Um, uh, and I'm now, I mean, I, 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 uh, oh, I just did a Zoom short film during, uh, during COVID that was completely improvised with Susan Coyne and Stuart Argot. And it was, I'm quite happy with it. Um, and it, I'd like to have an idea and see it through. Um, and so the same way that I helped my sister lift this business, because she's an entrepreneur, it's the same impulse, which is you have an idea and you see it come to fruition. Um, and then it, 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 yeah, it just gives you a bigger voice and more control. I can bring in wonderful artists to work with me. Um, I get to share the Michael Checkup work with this company and introduce people to it. Just lightly, you know, actors don't want to learn a new technique when there's a brief rehearsal, but we can lightly lay it in. Um, so I think people do it for many, for all those reasons. Now, the people who get exposed to the Michael Chekhov Chekhov mm -hmm. technique uh, through their little, you know, their 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 slight exposure to it when they're when they're working, say, with with you on uh -huh. on, on on your work, yeah. um, do they do they often find that they're interested and they want to learn more? Yeah. Um, well, I'm usually working with more mature actors who are really good. And, and so they're adding tools to the toolbox, which is really, I, which I say to everybody, everybody finds their own system. I'm here because I also teach. I teach, um, uh, I teach online and I teach in person and I teach an international group of actors. Since COVID, we can access people from around the world. Um, I also, and this is an aside, I meet weekly with independent studios around the world that teach this technique. I think it's the only technique where everybody pretty well knows each other and there's a big, huge community. Um, but I think, uh, I hope it's an enjoyable experience. I hope I honor their creativity and that they pick up some tools, um, that they can use. Um, you know, I've tried reaching out and teaching and, and, you know, people have their ways. And so I'm at a point now where people can find me, um, and I find that in the same way that I found the technique, I just, the method wasn't working for me. And this just is so honors play and creativity. Um, so actors, even the mature actors that have their own techniques, respond to it because it's actor friendly. It's just mm -hmm. playing with the imagination and and giving it a little form. Truly, all I did was watch what people did and give it a form. So it's mm -hmm. very intuitive and it's not daunting. It's not something completely different. It's just a, yeah, just a slight adjustment. Now you sit on the board of the Michael Chekhov Association in New York yeah I in do. New York um how did you I mean was that a choice did they approach well, you um now they approached me it was really just then it like all kinds of organizations it began as a group of actors wanting to come together to acquire this technique and teachers and then now it's become a big organization because they they reach everybody around the world and and they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and so 
they're at a crossroads because like everyone, they're out of money, COVID uh, drained them of finances. They're actors that are a bit overwhelmed by the administration. So it's just reaching out to the community and saying, how can you help us? Can we get you to help us with this? Um, and it's just supporting them. And it's been, they've been, it's been my artistic home for 20 years and I'm happy to help out and give back. What can you tell me about the, uh, the, the production, the, the stories that you'll be doing at the Red Sandcastle? We're just doing one. This, okay. this, story, this story this year is called The uh, Fiancé. And his tales are deceivingly simple. It's about a, it's a woman who's getting married in six months. She's 22 years old. She has been dreaming about her entire life. And then her friend Sasha arrives and turns her life upside down. Um, the interesting thing about the short story was it was his last short story that he wrote before he died of um, tuberculosis at 44. Mm. It was written um, as he was also writing The Cherry Orchard. So there's it's got big themes in it, like The Cherry Orchard, and there's some stuff in it that is actually very similar to The Cherry Orchard. You can see stuff bubbling up that either comes to fruition or is discarded in The Cherry Orchard. Um, and the thing about Chekhov short stories is that they are... a Prior to him, a, sh a short story had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And as uh, Susan Coyne always says, she's been my collaborator for the last three of them. It was kind of like a check. It's like a New Yorker story. Well, you're reading a New Yorker story and you turn the page and you go, mm. that's it? That's the <laughs> end of the story? Is there, is there a page missing? And you can thank Ed, uh, Anton Chekhov for that because he just, you know, I said, get rid of the middle, get rid of the beginning and the end and just present a moment. Uh, but this story actually has an ending. So it's unusual in that way. And it's a positive ending, uh, which is unusual. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, 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 it's really interesting. And I have great cast. Sadly, Susan was supposed to do it, and she just got her dream job, which I can't say. Um, so she just had to step away. So we have Helen Taylor stepping in. Hmm. So I have David Storch, who's done three of them with us. Um, uh Oh my God, Brenda Robbins, he'll be the narrator, and then Helen Tanner. Nice. And you know, for me, it's really wonderful to ask mature actors, particularly women, to do these readings. Does, the age doesn't matter of the character because they're readings. Mm. And, and so to have this breadth of talent on stage, to work with these beautiful words, um, is such a, a gift. It's a gift for all of us. We, we really... We have fun doing them because if you don't, what's the point of doing it? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, we get down to work, but yeah. uh, it, it's it's got to be joyous, um, particularly at this point in our lives. And then it's infectious to the audience too. Mm -hmm. And yeah if, yeah, if you're not enjoying the work and it's not like you're you're messing around because you know there could be some messing around, but you know if you're not enjoying the work itself, why are you doing it? That's that. That's yeah. I mean, some, yeah. some people get hired for a job and then they get in there. And go, Oh, oh, oh! This is what I'm up for. Oh, this, <laughs> um, and and so I want to make sure I I get people that also are that are willing to try new things, that are open, that want to have fun, and ultimately the ensemble is more important than the individual. Mm -hmm. I think that that's that that being part of an ensemble is God. It's such a hard skill to learn. I think because. An you know, ensemble is a, 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 a an organic thing. 
Yeah, it's a breathing, living organism. Yeah. And I think it has to be put in right away by the, by the director. That's the director's responsibility to make that uh, happen. And what can happen is things move quickly in theater. We have short rehearsal periods. Um, people are under pressure. There's a system that everybody does, which is, you know, you see, I, I don't do table work. I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I'd rather, I, I, we will read it, but I would rather uh, warm up the imagination and the body and the voice comes along for the ride as opposed to have them sit and be in their analytical head for two days and then have to get up and body it. Um, cause I think there's all kinds of exploration you can do on your feet. That's fun. It's called playing for a reason. Um, and uh, so like what happens is sometimes people just, actors in particular, I do this, we get myopic. But, you know, we highlight our lines. Mm-hmm. What do I want? You know, even when we're doing sides for, for, for auditions, for television or film. And um, you really have to discipline yourself to look at the whole. Um, your character is responding to something somebody says. You can't isolate your character. You can't isolate it from the full story. And so we can kind of get self-protective and busy in our own heads trying to figure out what we have to do when in fact your partner can help and i do improv classes with kate the wonderful kate ashby and you know the first thing you're taught is have your partners back how do you make them look better and Mm. and then it takes the focus off of you and there's some tools you can use particularly in the michael Chekhov work where if you trust the tool it takes the focus off you and it will feed you. Images feed you. Um, all atmospheres, lots of things can feed you. Um, so, yeah, the, the, uh, putting the focus on the ensemble, ensemble is makes it easier for everybody. Mm-hmm. And you have more compassion for the whole. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, Michael Chekhov has a chapter. It's in some obscure book. And it's the most beautiful thing I've ever read. And it's called Love. And he talks about how love is, um, people are embarrassed by it. It's sentimental. Um, They don't really talk about it. And he means bringing love into your creative process, into your fellow actor. Look for the higher self. Be in your higher self and look for the higher self in the other person. Find one thing that is that you like about them. Um, Love of the audience. The first thing you want to do is throw out that love to the audience. And is it way better to love your art form than to work on a craft. And so this, even you can slide this in sideways, but people get very scared by it. They get, um, uh, they think it's, it's, it's actually, I think, anarchistic and dangerous to even bring those words in. Um, and I think it's interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely it is. Uh, um, I've, had the the privilege of being able to work in in a couple of productions that with with uh, some like shows that were truly ensemble pieces mm-hmm. and um, man, there's nothing like a truly ensemble piece mm. when you because uh, I, I feel like any even more than the the average production where you feel the, a a, clo- a closeness to your castmates mm-hmm. with when it's an ensemble once you leave that's like these people like I haven't there's people that I I was in these shows with. Um, and I haven't seen them in years, but they're still family mm-hmm. to me because of the, the, the way that we worked in those shows. I, I think that's why people are drawn to the arts. You have this, 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 it, in a, if it's a good experience, um, 
you have this wonderful intimacy and it, it's, it's a safe intimacy. It's an imaginative in- intimacy. Um, because at the end of the day, it's just your imagination. Shake it off, walk away. So we can have these really intimate, emotional, physical, whatever, seeds. But it's playing. It's our imagination. And we, you've come into this world together. Mm-hmm. And how fun is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you step out of it. And you go, okay, that was the imagination. That was fun. Should we jump back in again? Uh, you know, and then you jump back out. You have these thresholds. Um, and, and so uh, that's, I think we're drawn to that as, as, as creative beings. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. we need, we need, we need, actors can't act alone. Mm-hmm. Even if you're doing a monologue, there's an audience. Or you're acting with an image. You know, when I teach, yeah. and you know, so much now for auditioning for, 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 for camera, uh, you know, you're, you're at home. I mean, I have my daughter on Zoom with her vocal fry behind me. At one point, I didn't have my step with me. I'm somewhere else. And I have the phone on a, on a ladder trying to create this imaginary world. Um, and so the more we... And my partner had to be the camera. It had to be the, zoom, the, the dot on my computer um, or my phone. Um, when I'm teaching people on Zoom, I'll have them reach up to the wall and receive the wall. What's the wall's personality? The more we use the imagination to embody something else, always need a partner. And it can be the air. You put something in the air and receive it. But we need a partner. We can't act alone. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, uh, the first time I performed a solo show, um, my director had said to me, um, the most important thing that you're going to do is you're going to be making eye contact with the audience because you were in this with them. They're your scene partner. And when, as soon as he said that, I, I could feel my stomach drop because that's not something I was used to. Um, but God damn it, he was right. You know? No, it's true. No, it's puke inducing. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I would suggest people take improv classes, clowning classes, because once you get that contact and hide from them, it's very addictive. Um, and also, you have all the power on stage. As they always say, don't fuck with a person on a mic. Um, and uh, it's fun having an audience as a partner. Um, and you can play with them. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's even if an image is your you know uh, is your partner, it's still a partner. Yeah, yeah. I can remember people when I was in theater school struggling with with soliloquies mm-hmm. in Shakespeare, mm-hmm. um, because there was a bit of a who am I who am I talking to? Mm-hmm. Who am I talking to? And if I'm talking to the audience, where did they come from? Mm-hmm. And over the years, I've 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 watched a lot of a lot of productions of Shakespeare, and for me, the ones where the soliloquy works best is, for the most part, where the actor just is talking to the audience, like well, they're there for him. Yeah, and if they choose not to speak to the audience, you're talking to a version of your younger self. I mean, mm. when you're having a dialogue with yourself, you're either you have a vision of yourself, an image of yourself, and maybe the stubborn part of you. Maybe it's the, the undecided part of you, the neurotic side of part of you saying, just calm down. Um, so you're always putting that person out there. And, yeah. and I mean, Chekhov has this wonderful thing, Michael Chekhov, um, because our imagination is so underutilized. What you can do is you can say 
to the character, present yourself in front of them. Come on, show yourself. Okay, show a little more. All right, show just a little bit more. Turn around, let me see how you move. And your imagination will show that. And then you can draw the outside of it. You can color in the colors or just step into that body and then be that body and then step back out and say, no, I don't like that. Show me more. So for imagination can do all this stuff. So in your soliloquies, just put up an image of yourself or you can even embody it in a chair and mm. jump back and forth talking to yourself as an exercise. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, as a, as an, a way of exploring it. Um, it's like gestalt therapy. I always embody the other thing. Um, yeah. So I get there's many ways of approaching it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, the fiance is going to be at the Red Sandcastle Theater from March 1st to yeah. March 5th. Um, and so we're doing, we're doing a March, uh, Wednesday to Saturday at 8 PM and yeah. you've added two shows Saturday and Sunday at 2.30. Uh, I think tickets are $25 and then, yeah, uh, mask mandatory at, uh, mm -hmm. at, at the theater because it's very small. That's their policy. It's uh, such a small yeah. space. It's such a small space that, that um, it's so necessary. And they're one of the few theaters in the city that hasn't had an outbreak. So Yeah. And also, it's, it's, it's an, the show's an hour. I mean, you can keep a mask on for an yeah. hour. <laughs> and, uh, or it's a little over an hour. And just allows everybody, including us on stage, without a mask. Mm -hmm. to uh, just sit back and, and enjoy the show and not yeah. think about anything else. And we did it last year in the height of COVID. Um, and we were, nobody got it. Well, I got it the final night. I couldn't, I oh. couldn't, I couldn't go to the show. I got it from my husband. Um, but yeah, nobody got it. And it was, um, it was, it was great. It was actually magical. The audience was so ready for it. Now, just before I let you go, I'm mm -hmm. curious. You you don't do rehearsals, but for for something, what do you mean? Like, do oh, I mean, I mean, you do rehearsals, like for this, for for the reading. Um, I'm, okay, no, oh, we rehearse. rehearse. Oh, yeah, we rehearse. Yeah. Um, you don't. You people don't have to be on bo off book, but but people need to rehearse. I don't know why I said you don't rehearse. Yeah. Um, I just want but, to clarify that. But you, what does a rehearsal look like for this? Okay, so uh, um. Well, in the morning, I will uh, do a little checkoff work, and I'll just do stuff that we will use in the rehearsal process. Um, one of the first things I do the first day is we look at the space, because once once you get into text and the play, you don't really look at space again. So uh, polarity is a big thing. We'll look at the uh, first of all, what is the atmosphere of the short story? It's a comedy, light, expansive, um, dances along, and we'll put that in the space. Um, we'll look at the beginning and the end of the short story. Um, all Chekhov plays at the basic level, open in expansion, arrival, this and that, ending contraction. Small space, a death, someone's dying, you're in a tiny room. Um, the fiancé opens on a beautiful spring, summer day, and uh, well, every chapter is different. And then we'll look at the beginning and the end of each chapter and how the atmospheres are different so that we have a journey to go. We have this polarity. And then we can do the entire short story so we have a sense of the whole first day. Then we get up and we uh, and we have already explored the space, so we'll just lightly put some scenes on their feet. Um, how do we bring it to life? What are the moments in the scenes? What are the shifts? Um, uh, you know, like traditional rehearsals, except they have script in hand. Um, usually the beginning and the end is done at the stands, and one point in, we'll go back to the stands. Um, 
And I try to use the space as much as possible in a funny way. Uh, and I have really good actors. They come up with a lot. So that's, it's just like any rehearsal space. Mm. We just go through it chapter by chapter, ship, uh, event by event. Um, and like we break them down and just look at smaller sections and then put it together. Uh, but I really believe in beginning with atmospheres it can, and polarity because it mm. gives you an outline of a journey. Hmm. Um, and you can get a sense of the ebb and flow and rhythm changes of the piece. Nice. That's it. And we throw balls and play. <laughs> I know, it sounds crazy. <laughs> everything, listen, and it, to people who aren't in a rehearsal room or haven't been in one, everything we do in there sounds crazy. Yeah, I, I, for me, the um, the most important thing is that it's a yes and space, mm. that it's expansive, because we know once an actor is shut down, they will not produce anything. Mm. I know from experience, and I've witnessed it. Um, so you want to keep them expanded and exploring, and you want to encourage that, um, and you want to keep it, keep them in their imagination and in play. And then we start editing, and we start we start using stuff to sort of put it all together. Um, but for a long time, you want to keep that open right. and encourage them. Mm -hmm. And we create characters. We do all kinds of fun stuff. Nice, just with the bodies. It's amazing. It's fun. Arena, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Oh, thank uh, you for your time. Thank you for allowing me to speak about this. And thank you for your really great questions. It's been fun to share this. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.